We had the opportunity to interview the Canadian writer, director and animator Dean Dubois presented itself. Well, we just had to say yes, even though our schedule is chock-a-block. For alongside Chris Sanders, Dean is the man behind the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, a series of films that have brought me and my two boys an immense amount of joy. They are also responsible for Lilo and Stitch, another big hit in our household. So it is that we have a bonus episode of Soundtracking for You, the podcast about screen music with me, Edith Bowman. The final instalment of the trilogy is called Hidden World, scored by John Powell with a little help from Yonsei from Icelandic band Sigur Ross. It brings to a conclusion the story of Hiccup the Viking and his dragon Toothless. The animation is absolutely staggering and beautifully complements a narrative that is both wildly thrilling and deeply moving, I have to say. Now, as always, we'll be interspersing relevant music with the conversation, including the John C. tracks that feature on the end credits of the first two films, Sticks and Stones and Where No One Goes. But we begin with John's cue, Once There Were Dragons, as Dean reflects upon the closing of a hugely significant chapter in his creative life. Dean, welcome to Soundtracking. Thanks so much. Um, I've got to say thanks straight away because I have two boys who are five and ten and the joy you have given us with these three films and Lilo and Stitch as well, I have to say, oh, is just you. an amazing gift. So thank you so much. Well, thank you and thank you to them. Um, they're fans. <laughs> they are huge fans. I went to see the new one, the, the third film on uh, on Saturday and man, you got me. I was in bits. What an amazing Good. adventure, emotional roller coaster. It's wonderful. I wanted to ask, was the idea that this was always going to be a trilogy for you when you when you signed up and, and did the first film? No, not, not until the film was released, actually, because the first film was a bit of a rescue mission um, okay. in that Chris Sanders and I, who had worked together on Lilo and Stitch, yeah. 
were uh, drafted to come on to How to Train Your Dragon with only 15 months before its release. And it needed a lot of story work. It needed a reconceive. Wow. So we were, we were just rushing to get the film done <laughs> and hopefully to have it be good enough for, to be a success for the studio. Uh, when it was, when it went out there and made money for the studio and it was critically well received, that's when they talked about a sequel. And generally I'm allergic to sequels if they lack a, a sense of purpose. So I, said, I like that's a good time of phrase. I'm allergic to sequels. I like that. Uh, but but I did I did say you know I looked back at the first film and I thought there were storylines that we hadn't fully explored mm. like what happened to the mother for example and we'd seen Hiccup go from Viking runt ne'er do well to at least a success as a 15 year old but we really didn't track it all the way through to him becoming the wise selfless chief that he was meant to be according mm. to the books yeah so I said what if we do a trilogy that uses each installment as an act of one larger story yeah. So in committing to a sequel, they were really committing to two. And it meant that we could give purpose to the second and third films and eventually take it all the way through to history as we now know it. The disappearance <laughs> of dragons, yeah. them turning into legends, and Hiccup fulfilling his arc of becoming, as I said, a wise and selfless chief who had to make a very tough decision by separating dragons and humans. It also allows it to have real emotional depth, I think, when you have that opportunity to tell a full story over three films. Would you agree? I do, yeah, yeah. I think it's a rare opportunity, actually. I was a kid who grew up on, on those those first three Star Wars films. Yeah, A New Hope, too. Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And I thought, that is such a rare opportunity to be associated with all three, mm. writing and directing and working with the same team of Hundreds of people. I mean, largely we're the same crew from the first, second, and yeah. all the way through to the third. So it's 10 years of our lives, but it's, um, I think, a very proud era for everyone at the studio. And not only are the characters saying goodbye to one another, but we say goodbye to those characters in that world and one another at the studio as well, because we yeah. don't know if we'll ever be brought together in that same as that same team on another film. Wow, I'm feeling, I'm feeling emotional <laughs> for you here, thinking about it. I mean, I know how emotional the film is to watch, but part of that team, obviously, is the wonderful John Powell, your composer on the film. And I wanted to, I guess when you came in on that rescue mission as you talked to it, was John already involved? Was he already part of that team? Yeah, I had not. So Chris Sanders and I uh, had worked with Alan Silvestri on, yeah. on Lilo and Stitch. This was our first opportunity to work with John Powell. He was wonderful from the start. What I quickly learned about John Powell was that he is very much a storyteller. He not only cares about the story, he reads the script, he comes to early screenings of the movie, and he starts to formulate his own take on the thematic material of the story, which is really quite amazing. For example, in the second film, as I was describing it, I said this is about a kid finding searching for his identity against the backdrop of two very strong and overbearing parents. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, that's interesting. I thought it was more about uh, lost and found. It's all about characters that are lost and either finding themselves or finding one another. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And so he wrote that score, which is a beautiful harmony to yeah. the, the main thematic elements that I was pushing. He's a very story-conscious composer. Yeah. Not only does he write beautiful music, but he's also supporting themes that I didn't even know were there.
you're then writing score for three, you know, going through three films, but characters having themes or there being familiar sounds with things, is that something that you talk about that you want to carry through and so that there's a an unknown connection the audience have when they, when some kind of musical instrument or melody comes in that r reminds them of a situation or a character? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think John was very aware of the fan base's attachment to certain themes. Yeah. And he wanted to save them for just the right moments yeah. in the third film. Uh, largely it's new music because there are new situations, new characters, but he does come back to a couple of the more more uh, well-established themes at just the right moment yeah. in the story that have great emotional significance. When I sat down with John, I, I now trust him so so unconditionally yeah. that I, I don't feel that I have to give him any specifics and say, you know, I want this to be really intense and, uh, you know, you're on the edge of your seat, whereas here I'd rather, I want, I want this to sort of bathe you in a, a kind of <laughs> a sympathy. He knows what to do with every scene and oftentimes it's, it's actually the opposite of my first instinct, you know, because he'll see something that's actually heartbreaking in the middle of an action scene yeah. and that's what he'll score. <laughs> yeah. um, Whereas I, I tend to be the, you know, the, the kind of the generic cliched <laughs> first, first reaction. But I did tell him, I said, this is your last opportunity to put everything you've got into this last installment because, you know, we bid it well and uh, we send it out to the world and that's it for Dragon. So I think he embraced that idea as well. And I, he wrote just such a gorgeous score oh. for this film.
there's so many little moments as well that really stood out for me in particular when we experienced the hidden world for the first time. How you animate that because I felt like I was flying through a real world watching that and the sounds that he's created with the music but also the other sounds that you hear that are all mixed beautifully together. Yeah. It's just absolutely breathtaking. Thank you. That scene in particular, he had uh, collaborated with Yonzi, who is the uh, frontman of Sigaros mm -hmm. in the second film, and Yonzi also wrote the end credits song in the first film. Where No One Goes, we listened to that, I would say, at least 10 times a week. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it so, was our breakfast song this morning, actually, so there. <laughs> um, so Yonzi was in LA, and he came by John's studio one day, and John just set him up with a laptop and a microphone and said, have a look at this hidden world scene and see what you could do with it. And Yonzi just spent the day doing all sorts of uh, vocal work that becomes the soundtrack as you first enter the hidden world and you start to explore the spaces before John brings in some orchestral elements. And it's such a beautiful handoff between Yonzi doing this beautiful ethereal vocal work and then probably my favorite theme that John wrote comes into play when you actually see Toothless revealed in the hidden world. It's a beautiful mix and it, it's a real compliment to the, the incredible work visually that was done in that sequence yeah. uh, by our whole crew. I mean, they, they stretched the technology as far as they possibly could and there are thousands of dragons on screen. Oh my God. This amazing world that's sort of brought to life with bioluminescence and crystal carrying light from magma veins mm. and steamy atmosphere. It just for us, it needed to be a world of these interconnected tunnels and chambers that ran beneath the oceans and the continents. Not just a cave, it had to be a yeah. world. If the dragons were going to go away, mm -hmm. it shouldn't feel like a banishment, it should feel like a return. Yeah.
I'm on yet. I, I can see it again, <laughs> just from you describing it. Uh, that's a really interesting thing about kind of seeing your team really pushing technology as well. And how has the animation technology changed from that first film up to working on this film? Has it changed dramatically? Has it made things easier? Has it made more things possible? It's exactly that. In, okay. a, in the beginning, I was completely blown away back in 2008 when we started working on How to Train Your Dragon because I, I came from a hand-drawn animation background, which has many of its own limitations. But we, we came into this world of computer animation and suddenly all of this detail and lifelike hair and fur and leather and the environments with the moss and the grass and the leaves, it was all so lush to us. And the subtlety of camera movement that you could achieve the subtlety of expression that you could have in a quiet moment with a character. Flying Whereas in hand-drawn animation, the line would just be boiling, you know, it's sort of, it's hard to get something very, very subtle, but there were endless possibilities in computer animation. So I was blown away then. <laughs> but over the course of these 10 years, every year they would reveal to us new, new tools that have just been developed. And it just got better and better and better. So now you look at the first film and think, oh, it's kind of little archaic looking um, in comparison to what we were able to achieve on the third film and I'm sure in 10 or 15 years we'll look back on this third film and say like ooh you know, it's a little dated isn't it oh <laughs> mate no these, these are timeless films these well, are you. yeah I'll be watching these in, in well, if I'm still here in 50 years but definitely well I think that ultimately the the greatest revelation I had on this film was it, we've reached a point now with the technology that uh, we can actually realize anything that we can dream up if you can picture something, no matter how outlandish, no matter how imaginative, if it can be communicated, if you can in some way hand that off to a crew of 300 people, it can be realized now. Mm. We, we no longer have restrictions. We, you don't have you know, somebody from the production crew walking in and saying, now, 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 we can't do fire, we can't do this, we can't do water, we can't do, you can't disturb cloud or whatever it is. Limitations that we used to have. You can't have that many characters on screen, it'll crash the system. All of that's gone away. The tools are intuitive and artist-friendly and very fast. Wow. Uh, so we can put it up on screen with such credibility, and it's wide open. It just it challenges the imagination because uh, they, they are, there are no more limitations. Wow, your wildest dreams can become a reality. I love exactly, that. Exactly, literally. That's amazing. <laughs> can I go back to the, um, in particular, Where No One Goes, which is A, an amazing song, but the way that it fits perfectly with everything to do with the second film and kind of is almost seamless with the tone of the score and all that kind of thing. And I wanted to ask how closely um, Yonsei worked with John and, and on that track or, or how that came to be really. I remember visiting Yonsei at a studio in Burbank and he was just in a room uh, working with a computer and he had a couple of orchestral elements that John had given him that he'd mm -hmm. kind of stripped away as stems. and he was incorporating those into the song, but he'd largely written a song around this, um, this, this one very iconic repetitious stem that, uh, from one of John's score elements. And he built the song and he, then he just started kind of singing it. There were no lyrics yet, but he was just sort of vocalizing where the lyrics would go. And I was kicking myself because I usually carry around a little camcorder to capture things for yeah. making of videos. And I thought, oh my god, I couldn't, I couldn't believe that I left it behind because it was magic that was happening right in front of me. Yeah, he, he generally just kind of works alone and has a great deal of energy in creating something. It's a burst that happens, you know, within the course of a couple of hours, and then he spends time refining it. We go where no 
long standing history with Sigurus and you made a film with them and things. Where did that relationship start? How did that start? The relationship started from just a love of the band. Yeah. Uh, I saw them supporting um, Radiohead at a festival in Oxford probably back in uh, 2000. Yeah. And at the time I was working on Lilo and Stitch and I, I just developed such a, a love for the band. I was listening to their, their CDs over and over again while I would write or draw or do anything creative. And I found the fact that I didn't understand any of the lyrics to be a benefit because I was never distracted by it. But it, the music was very cinematic and very, very visual to me. Yeah. So I, I pursued them, and after Lilo and Stitch, I was doing music videos. I, I met them, and I pitched them a few ideas, which didn't really materialize. But then they called me when uh, this ambition to make a tour film kind of hit the rocks. And I came in to help finish that project, and, and uh, we became fast friends. So I've done a couple of projects with Yonzi after that uh, Sigros film, Hema, and uh, I've, I've wanted him to uh, just... In the in the desire to blend my worlds, um, I've invited him into this this animation part of my life as well, and I, I think he really digs it. Yeah, well, I mean, his his creativity in that world has been absolutely wonderful. I slope in my blandy by the sun now, orange and white and red, green and yellow, rainbow colors tonight. I see the view, still the cycle through. I kiss the light, the storm blow up the everything bright, your songs burning you. The look in your eyes, pick a bounce into a scream and shout into first film I invited him to a screening here in London and I said would you consider writing a song for the end credits and he said I'll think about it and on his flight back to Reykjavik uh, he wrote it on his iPhone on the plane and then finished it in his kitchen and sent it over. <laughs> so, I get I mean amazing. another great example of technology and how the advancements of it makes that possible. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's yes. like it's brilliant.
talk a little bit about Lilo and Stitch? Sure. And and uh, I mean, it just makes me smile thinking of <laughs> of that film as well. And, and your memories of making that, it must feel like a lifetime ago. It does. does it? I mean, it really does. Uh, but a very happy memory because yeah. that film was made as kind of a B-movie for Walt Disney Studios at the time. They gave us less time and less money to make it. And they told us that we would have to move from Burbank, California to the, the studio in Orlando to make it, which at the time was kind of a satellite studio. It would do little bits and pieces of the larger movies that were being produced in Burbank. So we moved there for three years. The entire studio worked on the film. And so um, unlike, say, at Burbank or any other big studio, whether it's Pixar or DreamWorks, there are multiple films on the go. And so uh, a crew of 2,000 people would be split up over five films or so. But in Orlando, it was all 300 people working on this movie all together. It built such a family atmosphere. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of fun. At the beginning, (laughs) we got the crew together and we said, we have to figure out how to make this movie with less time and less money in such a way that we can all go home and have dinner with our families at night. We all get weekends. And we're not going to, you know, drive ourselves into the hospitals or uh, yeah. <laughs> cause undue divorces and sickness. Like, let's figure out how to make this film without that pressure on us and have it be a good time. And sure enough, we did. And I think it's reflected in the movie. It has kind of a warmth and um, sort of a small town, intimate, tropical warmth to it. Like an yeah. atmosphere that, that is reflected in the movie as much as it was in the studio. And you've already mentioned Alan Silvestre's score too, which is oh, typically brilliant. Oh, it's great. Someone said that exact same thing yesterday. Uh, you know, when you have a happy crew, you can feel it on screen. It's, uh, it's kind of crazy that it's two days in a row someone said that. It's such a true yeah, truth. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think you can feel it in the, the Dragon films as well. Yeah. It, certainly you can feel the pride of the artists, that mm. they were really pushing themselves. Because yeah. they knew that, in p- particular in this film, they knew this was the last chance to get their very best up on screen. And I think they knew, based on the, the warm reception that the first two installments have had that this third film stood to be acknowledged in that same esteem and therefore 
could be timeless. You know, it could be a, a real feather in their caps in their careers. Yeah. So everybody on the crew really pushed themselves. The tone of the new film as well is just fabulous in terms of there's comedy in there. There's a great kind of emotional depth. There's a great element of discovery as well, I think. But I wanted to ask, I heard that you'd written Valcourt particularly for Kate Blanchett in mind. You'd, you'd, kind of when you wrote it, you were like, that's who I want to play. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did you convince us to do it? So How to Train Your Dragon, the first film, mm -hmm. was nominated for Best Animated Feature. And I went to the Oscars and I saw Kate Blanchett standing there with her hair all done up in this beautiful gown, sipping cocktails before the, the ceremony got underway. And I just introduced myself and I said, hi, I'm, I'm Dean Devlo. I wrote a part for you in How to Train Your Dragon 2. And she said, really? And she says, well, tell me about it. And I said, well, she's this Diane Fossey, sort of Jane Goodall-like <laughs> woman who's been living in the wild with dragons for 20 years, and she's had no human contact. And so she's become quite feral herself. And she said, oh, that's that's fascinating. She would have all sorts of dragon mannerisms. And, and there in her gown, she started acting out how she might move around as a dragon. And she said, well, my boys are fans of the movie. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm not doing anything at the moment, so send me the script. Amazing! <laughs> it's that easy! Yeah. It's that easy. This is where you've been? for 20 years you, you've been rescuing them unbelievable you're not upset what no I, I don't know I, it's a bit much to get my head around to be frank it's not every day you find out your mother is some kind of crazy feral vigilante dragon lady oh. <laughs> At least I'm not boring, right? Well, I suppose there is that one specific thing. Do Do you like it? I I, I don't have the words. <laughs> can Can I? Oh, he's beautiful. Do you enjoy that side of it as well, the, the voice work and working with the actors? Because you have, I mean, I mean, I love the fact, being Scottish, that there's, you know, we've got, that you're celebrating that accent around the world. It's, so yeah. thank you. Um, you welcome. And, uh, but is that a fun part of it for you? Oh, it's great. It's fantastic because every, every actor comes at the role in a different way. Yeah. But I love that all of our actors have this great sense of ownership over the character, yeah. especially having played them for so long. I can write the script and have a general approach for every character, but they, I can rely upon them to reword it and to perform it in such a way that it feels so specific and authentic. <laughs> and oftentimes, I always encourage ad-libs, so oftentimes I'll, I'll end up using something that wasn't scripted, uh, that they came up with in the moment that feels spontaneous and full of life. Yeah. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. I mean, I could talk to you about it for hours. I hope we get the chance to do it again. What is next? Do you know what's next? I mean... Nothing yet. Nothing I haven't... Um, I've, I've just been deliberately focused on rolling this film out and taking a breather and acknowledging that that was 10 years of my life. And wow. uh, I think the next thing, I hope, will be quite different. And it could be in live action, possibly, if the, if the right project is there. But not to be presumptuous, I just don't know. Yeah. I haven't had any of those meetings yet. Okay. And I'm not sure if anyone would want to make my own my own projects, but we'll see. Well, listen, thank you for the last 10 years for these wonderful films you've made. Thank you. Great, thanks, Dean. <laughs> Na 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 ma ka ni ke a
the soundtrack to Lilo and Stitch, that's Himeli no Lilo by, now bear with me, Mark Kiali Iho Omalu and Kami Hamiha School's Children's Chorus. Rounding off this bonus episode of Soundtracking with Dean Dubois. My huge thanks to Dean for taking the time to talk to us. What a remarkably humble man he is. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World is on general release around the world now, with John Powell's score available via our good friends at Backlot Music. If you're a fan of animation, uh, head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my chats with animation gods Brad Bird and Lee Uncridge. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us if you like what you hear. Next up on our usual publication day of Monday is Oscar-winning director, the fabulous Barry Jenkins, whose new film, If Beale Street Could Talk, is also out now. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. (laughs) 